Well, hello there. It is great to see you again, and welcome back to Through the Wealth Lens. I'm your host and moderator, Ryan Ruff. We've got the star of the show, Mr. Hannes Grasher, private wealth advisor over at UBS. He'll be joining us momentarily. And then we've got some special guests lined up for you today uh, that are going to be joining us. We've got Mr. Daniel Lipschitz and Adam Turbowitz of Boys Schiller Flexner LLP. Really excited about today's conversation. First and foremost, though, let's go ahead and say hey to the star of our show, Mr. Hannes Grasher. Hannes, how are you doing this morning? Good to see you. Hey, Ryan. Good to be good to be back. Hey, always good to sit down with you, you know, and, and dive through another wealth management related discussion, Hannes. And I'm really excited about today's because it's a little different. It's a little off the beaten path. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be discussing kind of a little bit of an awkward topic, honestly, uh, for many people because it can be one of the most crucial instances of a family's wealth when going through this. And we're talking about prenups today really that marital exit and, and maybe some strategies that could make some good sense when you're focusing on this world. So to shed some further light on this situation and how just crucial it really is for, for Hannes and his clients as well, you know, we're joined today by some experts in that field. And these are diver divorce attorneys, Daniel Lipschitz and Adam Turbowitz of, again, I mentioned boys, Schiller Flexner, LLP guys, what to bring you onto the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Looking forward to it. Yeah, we got a good conversation teed up for us, you know, for our audience today. And, uh, you know, Hannes, I'll throw this first question over to you to get things rocking and rolling. Let's start on a basic note for our audience. Why would you say prenups are just so important for modern clients to be considering these days? Yeah, sure. Yeah. But before we dip into this or dive into this, I wanted to give the audience a little bit more context. So Daniel and I actually had a conversation back in December at during Art Basel, and we're talking about the fact that, you know, a lot more people are getting divorced during COVID, but also the fact that a lot of people relocated in the last two years. And so Adam and Daniel are both New York transplants who, like many of their clients, have moved to Florida. And we thought it would be really educational to talk about some of the basics of prenups, but also let Adam and Daniel explain the impact on existing prenuptial agreements. And so Ryan, just to give your audience an idea of how many marriages in the United States end in divorce, think about this statistics, right? About 50% of first marriages end in divorce, 67% of second marriage end in divorce, and 73% of third marriages end in divorce. So I'm not aiming for that third one, but um, it's certainly a daunting statistic. And that uh, means about 800,000 couples in the US get divorced every year. And so when you think about what this means in terms of splitting of assets and holding on to generational wealth, it really can create a whirlwind of problems for anyone who's not legally prepared for this. Yeah, Roger that. So Hannes, why would you say couples are often so hesitant though to engage in prenups that would otherwise, you know, prepare them for these worst case scenarios? Why do you find that this is such a little bit of a tightrope of a conversation these days? Well, it's somewhat unpleasant and I will let Daniel and Adam expand on this in depth, but at, at a very high level, many people believe that just broaching the subject of a prenup can, you know, can create a number of negative emotions in a pending marriage. You know, for example, prenuptial agreements is an admission the marriage will fail in the first place, or having a prenup sends negative signals to the other person. You know, and it just, you know, some people feel like it just it's an easy way out of the marriage, right? And and then also, you know, it will actually increase the chance of getting divorced. And and 
and it shows a lack of trust and commitment. But Daniel, you know, you deal with this on a daily basis and Adam, you too. Do you want to expand on any of these points? Yeah, thank you, Hans. Um, I think that to some extent, uh, every situation is different and there are some stigmas around uh, entering into prenuptial agreements. But in large measure, I think in this day and age, when you have uh, good counsel, when you have good people in your um, on your roster like you, Hans, who are giving good advice, there is a, a certain discussion leading up to whether it's a wedding or you know, in, in talks with the younger uh, next generation about uh, these type of protections. And you know, as I said, every situation is different. And I think knowing is half the battle. And if you start and ha to have these discussions um, with your children, um, if you start to have these discussions with your advisors that um, you can sort of create a, a very good platform to, to reach out to or enlist the help of somebody like Adam and me so that you are touching on the things you need to touch on um, early enough so that you, you know, it doesn't become something that necessarily is a stigma or that there's a lot of anxiety around. Um, it, it's really, I think, uh, at a starting point, you need to know about it, but we're going to talk about it, but it's also controlling the message because sometimes if, if it's packaged correctly, um, it can it can certainly be received in, in the right light and, and in fact, uh, constructive. Yeah, I'll just touch on that a little bit um, because I think that a lot of the um, you know stigma surrounding prenuptial agreements really relates mostly to um, the fear of having difficult conversations, right? And you know we do this work all the time where we're separating divorcing families, and you know very often the reason why people are divorcing is because they cannot communicate with one another. Um, if you are able to have open and honest conversations with somebody um, before you get together about difficult topics, like what should happen if, God forbid, we get divorced, um, you know, that I think can strengthen your bond and your relationship. And, you know, if you can develop a plan with the help of your advisors, as Daniel said, that makes sense for you and your family, you know, it's more about the fear of it than anything else. And um, in fact, I think it can make, if you're able to have those conversations early on and you can come up with an, a document that everybody's happy with and comfortable with, and you know, as part of a fair, open and honest conversation, it actually can strengthen your relationship. So Adam, so based on what are, what are often some of the cons that, that are discussed in prenups and what are, what are some of these types of agreements? Can you, can you just name a few pros of the prenups? Sure. So um, a prenuptial agreement is essentially a contract, like any other contract, that governs um, what will happen in usually two, two circumstances, divorce and death. Um, those are the most area, two, probably two of the most difficult things to talk about, but you would have a contract essentially that governs what would happen um, in those situations. Um, the pros of prenuptial agreements are that 
they will make a divorce process easier in theory, right? You can, depending on what state you're in, and obviously you have to be focused on the specific the rules of the specific jurisdiction, but you can contract pretty much um, about anything that you want, so long as it's not against public policy of that particular state, right? So you can um, decide how you're gonna divide a property, decide where everybody's gonna live in the event of a divorce, um, decide what support is going to be paid. Um, and pretty much as long as the agreement is fair, um, not the product of duress, fraud, unreaching, um, overreaching, is in writing, signed by the parties, it's going to be held to be enforceable, again, depending on whatever state you're in and what law governs. Um, so the pros are that you can make your divorce process should you get there, or um, the process of how your estate is going to be divided in the event of your death with your spouse easier in the sense that it'll lay it all out for whatever court or um, people are there trying to interpret what it means, right? And that can make the divorce process really simple and really easy. Um, some of the cons really, I, I wouldn't say that there are really any cons with a prenuptial agreement other than obviously the difficult conversations that you might have to have with your you know, soon to be spouse in the beginning. Um, but one of the cons that Daniel or the primary con that Daniel and I come across and what we do is inartfully drafted prenuptial agreements or prenuptial agreements who are not, that are not drafted by professionals in the field. Time and time again, we are presented with agreements that have been drafted by people who really shouldn't be drafting them by um, trust and estates attorneys um, and you know, general practitioners who don't litigate divorce cases for a living. And the problem with those people, although they might be wonderful drafts people, um, they don't understand the issues that we are faced with on a day-to-day -day basis. And so many times they, um, you know, think they're doing their clients a service and drafting things a certain way. And in reality, it creates more problems than it, it is intended to solve. And so many times we have fights in cases about what the agreement actually means or what it was the parties intended when they entered into it. And so that, that, in my view, in our view, I think is the biggest con that we see. And it is why you really, you know, as Daniel said, you need to be with your advisors, with people you trust, with people who know this area of law, who practice in this area on an everyday basis to make sure that if you're going to do a prenuptial agreement, you do it right and that it is clear, unambiguous, so that it minimizes um, any dispute later on about what you intended or what the agreement means. Yeah, and, I, and I'll add to that a little bit in that uh, dovetailing working with your advisors and making sure that you have a, an artfully and straightforward drafted agreement, sort of the other, call it mini con or lesser con, uh, is that you have an agreement that's clear and then you don't abide by it and you don't follow what it says. You don't have the advisors in your corner saying, do you have this type, do you have an agreement? This is what was negotiated. How are you making decisions with the investments that you're making? How are you making decisions with the way that your accounts are titled to the way that you're spending money? And you have to be, so it's, it's almost like a complete package and it goes to how you're, protecting 
your wealth. And we'll talk about some real world scenarios in a little bit, but it's about protecting your wealth and structuring in a way that not only you can leave it for generations, but making sure that once you are having a change in your family structure, a life event like a marriage, and you do, you take the right steps, you then have to make sure that you follow what you've contracted to. You make sure that you're constantly speaking to guys like, like you, Hans, um, and having people that are, are really um, sophisticated in your corner that, that, that know about these things and know how to interpret them and, and can work with you and your counsel to, uh, to make sure that you don't fall into the, some of the real world pitfalls that we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah, so that sounds, so Adam, just to summarize what you said, so A, you really want a specialist to sort of like going to the shoulder surgeon who does only shoulders versus a general practitioner and says, you know, yeah, we can, we can fix that, right? You really want somebody who just, you know, does this all day long, 24 hours, seven. And then, and I guess, Daniel, what you said is, it's not just important to have a game plan, right, to have an agreement, but actually follow that game plan. And so, you know, we all we love examples. So uh, can you can you give us some some real life examples that kind of illustrate that? Of course, obviously, we're not naming names because we probably recognize some of them. Uh, you know, I think the, the examples always kind of bring it home to the audience in terms of, you know, yeah, that makes sense. I kind of found myself in a similar situation type of thing. Yeah, so, so I'll, I'll, we're going to break it up into sort of two sections. First, I'm going to explain some situations, and then Adam will talk a little bit about some, some actual matters um, that that have been reported decisions that, that sort of will help understand it a little bit better. I mean, your real life scenario, when are prenups good or can be helpful? For example, you have a second marriage um, and you have already been through the process and perhaps the, um, the scales of wealth are not as in line with one another. You have a business and the business has been built over a number of years and you wanna make sure that not only for your business partners, but also for yourself that there's not going to be a fight over the business's value um, after, after you've been married for a number of years. So frequently people will try and uh, create a situation where they uh, accept out the business and so that there's not going to be a huge dig into the books and records of, of the business. And it just creates some security in how you're going to operate your, um, your business and your professional life. And so we, we do see situations like that, that, that are um, appropriate for the structure of a prenup. And I think a fourth one that occurs to me is if there is significant family wealth and you want to ensure that, you know, perhaps there are trusts that have been set up and things of that nature, that there's not going to be any type of attack that's mounted um, against the trusts or against what, what you have structured as sort of a generational wealth plan. And so people will, 
want to have a agreement in place that precludes those type of attacks. Um, I think those are those are some three or four real life examples that uh, make sense for you know the, the use of a prenup. And so just to touch on some real life situations or problems that we've um, seen in our our business, I think they fall typically into three buckets. Um, the first bucket is cases where the prenuptial agreement is set aside for one reason or another. Um, now, depending on what state you're in, this is more or less likely. Um, Daniel and I practice in New York and Florida. Those two states are very um, pro-agreement. They are pro-deciding, you know, sp marrying spouses, deciding their rights before the marriage. Um, and so you will see very few reported decisions in those states setting agreements aside. That is not to say that they don't exist because they do. And there has been a line of cases in New York um, where agreements have been set aside because of the circumstances surrounding their execution. Um, specifically, when people are making promises to one another at or around the time of signing, where maybe one spouse that are, aren't memorialized in the agreement, but um, are something that the you know, the fiance or the uh, one of the parties is relying on, but they don't necessarily appear in the agreement. Um, <clears throat> situations where you have one spouse who is not represented by counsel, by an independent attorney. Um, situations where there isn't financial disclosure or um, any kind of exchange of information where um, agreements are being signed right before a, a wedding, maybe the morning of or the night before. Um, you will, there are a number of cases where agreements have been set aside um, where those circumstances um, take place or have occurred. And um, that can all be, I think, prevented if you have open and honest conversations with the person you're marrying, where you have your own independent representation and where the agreement can be negotiated at arm's length prior to your marriage and, and um so that you don't have an agreement where, you know, a situation where 10 or 15 or 20 years down the line, you thought you had an enforceable agreement, lo and behold, you know, the circumstances surrounding the execution were such that a judge says, this really was entered into not voluntarily with undue influence or some other such um, uh, questionable circumstances that rendered the agreement unenforceable. Um, that is not common, but it happens. Um, the, the second bucket, I guess, of problems that we see is what I touched on a, a few minutes ago, which is that agreements that are either drafted by people who are not skilled, and I think, Hannes, your you know, shoulder surgeon analogy is exactly right, um, that you know, your, your agreement was drafted by somebody who doesn't specialize in the area. And while they might be a perfectly good drafts person, they did not encompass what, A, you intended, and B, what you know, how the law might interpret this agreement. Um, and so there's a specific reported case it's called Anonymous versus Anonymous from New York. Um, it involved a major celebrity, billions of dollars. Uh, it's a published reported decision. And um, the problem with that agreement was exactly that, exactly what I identified, that the agreement wasn't drafted by um, divorce lawyers. And 
while the parties thought they were doing certain things, the practical implications under the divorce laws as they apply didn't actually accomplish those things, not as they should have. And the result was that the parties, I think, spent a couple of years in litigation fighting over what the agreement actually meant. There's a reported trial level decision where the judge even talks about this very thing that, you know, the agreement intended to do certain things that it didn't do because the language was not as precise as it ought to have been. It went up to the appellate court, which affirmed the trial court's ruling. And ultimately, the person who was seeking to enforce the agreement as he viewed it prevailed, but not before, you know, two or three years of litigation and potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars were spent just fighting over what the agreement meant. Um, that's sort of the second bucket that we see in our cases, fighting over what the agreement means when it's not as clear as it ought to be. And then sort of the third uh, sort of area we see is where um, the parties think that they're implementing their agreement. And for whatever reason, it um, doesn't come to be because either they don't police their agreement, meaning they don't actually follow the terms during their um, marriage, or the, the, the agreement could be um, more all-encompassing than it actually is. Um, I'll talk about another specific case um, that we're familiar with, also happens to be from New York, where we practice. And in that particular agreement, there was um, language about uh, a home that the parties were to own together. And um, there was uh, some dispute about um, whether or not the husband could take credit for um, debt that was associated with the home that they acquired during the, the relationship, during the marriage. Um, the agreement specifically said that the husband would get credit for any mortgage that he obtained with respect to that property, right? But the husband didn't get a mortgage. The husband borrowed against other assets not secured by the home in order to finance the purchase. And the lower court and the trial court um, said, you know, tough luck. Your agreement says mortgage. You didn't get a mortgage, right? And so the resulting implication was that he didn't get credit for that debt. He had to share the full value of the home with his spouse, but assume all of the debt, right? And so that is, in addition to potentially an issue with drafting, that is an issue with parties not policing their own agreement, right? Mr. This person should have looked at his agreement and said, okay, mortgage means this. I better get myself a mortgage so that I protect my interests, right? And we see that all the time. And when we're doing these agreements with clients, we're counseling them, look, we can draft this agreement how you want it and protect you in all these different ways. But there are certain things that you're going to have to do and certain steps that you're going to have to take. And if you don't take them, all of these things could go out the window. So in addition to drafting agreements that will hold up scrutiny in a court and will be easy for a judge to you know, understand, you have to make sure you're telling your clients, look, follow your contract, police your own agreement. I think that that's a really interesting point because I think it kind of goes back to doing a review, right? I mean, we do financial reviews for our clients, but I think when you're talking about policing an actual agreement, it really kind of goes to the point where you should check in with your team of experts and kind of review everything you've done. And that kind of thing, if you catch it early, I would think can probably be corrected, like be converting you know, a, a, secure, a security-based loan to secure the property versus a mortgage. I mean, right, so doing a kind of like an annual 
checkup or health check on, on all your agreements, I think makes a ton of sense, right? Whether it's with your family lawyer, with your financial people, et cetera. Was the question I had for you, Hans, a little bit. I mean, how do you, how do you find encounter prenups in your practice? How do you, how do you work with your clients when you know that there's a prenup in place? Um, what are some of the things that, that, that you do? I, I mean, I, I know that you encounter them quite frequently. Well, I think, you know, it, when we do what we call a stress test, a stress test is really looking at client situation really from all angles. And, you know, we talked about it before you look at their insurance policies and you look at their portfolios and you look at really everything. Um, you kind of go, we call it a discovery process as well. I mean, you, you know, you are well aware of the discovery process that you guys do in a kind of like a legal setting. When we do a discovery process, we try to find all these gaps. And, um, and if we feel that there is a need for a prenuptial, we'll bring in one of our experts, you know, such as you or Adam, um, who can then advise the clients. But it really, and in some cases, um, it's really kind of what we're seeing more is really children of clients who are now getting into, you know, getting to an age where they're thinking about getting married. And in some cases, there's a lot of wealth and the parents may say, you know, I'm really not that comfortable with my daughter's boyfriend. Um, I think maybe a gold digger for lack of a better term, but they're just worried about how it might impact their legacy or the family wealth. So it's really just having that conversation uh, on an ongoing basis, bringing in the experts. You know, we have what we call this virtual family office, what we have um, experts like Daniel Adams that we can call on um, to, to give us their opinion. But that's sort of like the process. That's how we do it. And I, I got a question for you guys. Uh, you know, we had mentioned, uh, you know, you guys practice in both the states of New York as well as Florida. I would imagine, you know, similar to Hannes, you know, you've got these clients that are domiciled in different states throughout the country. Could, uh, you know, Adam or, or Daniel, could you walk through or briefly explain for us just how prenups can kind of come in handy in light of, you know, situations where you've got different, you know, different state laws, different states in, you know, in the equation? How does that play out with what you guys do? Yeah, and I, I think that um, Adam touched on it a, a little bit earlier in that, you know, we practice in two states that are, for lack of a better description, pretty prenup forward. Um, New York upholds prenups. Um, as Adam said, you know, the, the, the main requirements are primarily that there's not duress in the signing of them, that they're not unconscionable and that they're acknowledged, meaning they're signed before a notary. Uh, we like to have full financial disclosure or sufficient financial disclosure um, as well attorneys on both sides. But, but New York courts uh, and New York state uphold prenuptial agreements. Um, so, you know, it, it, and, and Florida is the same way and Adam can speak a little bit about the, the differences in the Florida law, but the one thing to consider and, and I, you know, Hans, had, we've worked together before and, and, and he's identified things like a move um, to a different jurisdiction and, and, you know, an outgrowth of the pandemic is it shook a significant number of trees pretty violently. And I think it, it, 
displaced people all over the country. And you always want to make sure that when you're making a move, um, you change your residency, that you, if you have a prenuptial agreement, you reach out to your advisors and you get in touch with somebody who might be able to give you some advice as to whether or not there's any implications of the move. Um, routinely uh, in, in Florida, if there is a move, you know, we will try and Floridaize the agreement to make sure that uh, if there's any questions about the enforceability and in the, in, given the move that, that we do um, some additional cleanup work. But it, it's, you know, it's something that uh, you want to make sure that you're on top of. Um, and, you know, of, of any state in the country, you know, you're going to, because marital law is, is state focused, you're going to want to have representation from that state where you believe you're going to be domiciled, where you believe you're going to be leading your married life um, to get advice. That's not to say that if you vacation in Florida or you vacation in California, it's going to change anything significantly but um it's something to consider you want to sort of touch on how florida differentiates a little bit from from new york right so i think daniel touched uh, to hit it on the head right state law governs what happens with a divorce right so wherever you're um living at the time you're divorcing is the state that's going to govern what happens with respect to your property what support has to be paid and all the other things attendant to a divorce the good thing about prenups is that you can choose what law applies to your situation. Typically, your choice of law has to have some bearing on where you um, live or you have to have some connection to, right? You can't live in New York and say, well, I want to have a prenup governed by the laws of the country Missouri, of India or right. Missouri or some other place, right? There has to be some connection, but um, that's a good thing about agreements. You, If you know where you're going to be living or you know where you're potentially going to be living, you can contract what state's going to govern. And so that is beneficial for people who have an unexpected move. And the reason it's beneficial is because at the time you're getting together, let's say you're living in New York and you want New York law to govern. And so you have a prenuptial agreement and you say that New York law governs and you follow all the formalities. Now you have an enforceable contract. Um, let's say you move to California. Without that prenuptial agreement, the entire landscape of the divorce changes um, because the laws in the state of New York are vastly different from the state of California. Even let's give you a, a, a much simpler example. Um, let's say you're living in New York City at the time you enter your prenuptial agreement, but you decide, look, the city's not for us. We want to move to the burbs. And you just go over, over the border, you know, 30 minutes away to Stamford, Connecticut, right? Right there commutable to the city. You want to continue working in the city, but you live in Connecticut. I, I also practice in Connecticut. The, the divorce laws in Connecticut are vastly different than they are in New York. There's, you know, the idea of separate property doesn't really exist. Um, pretty much everything is in the pot. There's all sorts of different rules that, that apply. And if you don't have an agreement that says what law governs, you're going to be subject to the laws of that state. And so it's very important for people who even possibly contemplate the idea that they're going to be living in a different jurisdiction than the one they're in when they get married to, you know, pick what law you want to apply. And as Daniel said, if and when you do actually go there and you're, you know, still in a happy marriage and all of those things, that you reach out to your advisors and say, look, now we're in this new place. Is there anything I have to do with our existing agreement to make sure that it's going to withstand scrutiny in this new state? 
that it's going to, you know, make sure that what we accomplish, what we intended to accomplish when we sign the agreement, we can still accomplish later on down the line. Um, just to touch a little bit on, on enforceability of agreements, I think Daniel hit it on the head. And what you'll find in most places is that agreements have to be in writing, they have to be signed, the um, um, circumstances around signing are different, right? So for instance, in Florida, you don't have to um, have it acknowledged in the manner for a deed to be recorded, whereas in New York, you do. If you don't, it's not gonna be enforceable in New York. So some states will be different about the formalities, but generally it has to be in writing, has to be voluntarily entered into, and you know it can't be the product of fraud, duress, coercion, and so on and so forth. And in order to prevent those things, you typically advise clients to you know, have full and fair financial disclosure, or at least a waiver of financial disclosure, like in Florida, that is one one thing you can do if you want, you know, an, an agreement won't be held to be unconscionable if there is a waiver of financial disclosure, although we still advise clients to give it because it's always better and you combat against all of the arguments that you see um, when there isn't financial disclosure, right? And so as long as the agreement's voluntarily entered into, not unconscionable, um, not the product of fraud, duress, overreaching, or anything like that, in writing, signed, it, you know, it's your, typically going to be upheld by your court. agreement is your insurance policy. You overdisclose, you don't underdisclose. You know, you want to, you're basically creating a roadmap and you want to make sure that you do everything as fairly as possible because you're negotiating on an agreement. And so, you know, one of the core components of that is just making sure that, that everything's on the table and it's, why you know Hans and his team come in frequently to sort of lay out what's there and also issue spot um, before and during the process um, and and it's why we work so closely with Hans and his team um, you know not not only in divorce actions but in prenuptial agreements where it's really wealth protection um, and and creating a roadmap for not only your married life, but also to the extent there's going to be inheritances and things of that nature, and how you're going to how you're going to transition wealth down the gener generational path. Yeah, and I think Daniel, the, you know, the team approach is just so critical. And you kind of asked me the question, but uh, this is actually now for you and Adam. So, can you describe a little bit the process of creating a prenuptial client? Because it, you know, again, like you said, it it really we always come back to the human element, right? It's an agreement between two parties and communication is so important. Can you just walk us through how you, you know, construct one? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, from start, you sit down with the lawyer and you sort of explain what it is you, where you are at in your financial condition. And you're going to be, in essence, creating, and I come back to a roadmap for how you're going to be living your married life. And the concept of a, of a marriage in its purest sense is an economic partnership. And that means that when you get married and you take a snapshot on the day you get married, if there's no agreement in place, you are going to be acquiring marital property and you're going to be, the clock will be running. And the economic rights that are gonna come uh, as an outgrowth of your marriage are, are going to be developing. And when you create a prenuptial agreement, 
you are in essence choosing how you're going to define those rights. And perhaps in its simplest form, you're saying what is what what exists today is my premarital property is I want to create a situation that I am going to keep all of that separate. Neither one of us is going to make a claim to that. And once we're married, we're going to have a, an, an economic partnership and our rights are going to be governed by the state laws. If perhaps you want to go a little bit more conservative on the spectrum because of some of the circumstances we touched on earlier, like there's a significant wealth disparity or perhaps there's significant generational wealth that's going to be passed on and you want to, in essence, do away with the concepts of um, the true economic partnership, perhaps you have an agreement that, that says what is in your name is yours and what is in my name is mine. And we are not going to, in essence, be creating property during our marriage. And when you hear of prenuptial agreements that uh, provide one spouse with money on a yearly basis, for example, people, you know, I'm sure have heard of, of structures of agreements like that. That's usually in situations with what we call a title controls prenuptial agreement, which is that how title is held will control how it will be distributed. And how. so if, again, there's significant wealth disparity and one party has significant wealth, how title is held will control how it's distributed. And in those situations, you will have, um, you know, usually some amount of money that's paid over on a yearly basis uh, as a way to have a more conservative type of agreement. So usually when you go to structure these prenuptial agreements, you start with that framework. You start with the framework of what's sort of a not conservative um, conceptual economic partnership, but we are defining rights to certain pieces of property or a more conservative structure uh, that has, in essence, title controls. And then you get to, within that construct, select perhaps the way certain assets will be treated like a marital residence, uh, like a business. And so you can get very creative um, and very complex because um, the prenuptial agreement contract can in essence, allow you to do whatever you want. Um, and as Adam said earlier, you can do whatever you want, as long as it's not against public policy and as long as it doesn't deal with children um, and you know custody issues and child support issues. But other than that, you can pick and choose how you want to uh, structure your um, prenuptial agreement. And I'll just add throughout the process, we are liaising with people like Hans. We are liaising with, uh, you know, trusted estate lawyers who perhaps have a, uh, created a state plan so that you are approaching it in a collective team approach. You need to make sure that whatever you're mapping out, whatever you're mapping out is in line with what exists because you can pick whatever you want, but if it doesn't fit into the mold of how your uh, financial advisor has structured your um, investments, your portfolio, um, if it's not aligned with how your uh, trust and estate lawyers have structured your estate plan, then it can get very complicated. So I think obviously it starts with reaching out to a divorce lawyer or a family law lawyer like Adam and myself, 
but then it's how are we going to education, understanding the process, understanding what goes into these type of agreements, and also then coordinating with Hans, Hans's team, um, any other lawyers that that are involved on perhaps the uh, state side. You know, guys, what I'm hearing is there's just a lot of flexibility, really, when it comes to this process of creating the prenup for a given couple. And and while obviously you just shared with us all the different benefits that that flexibility brings to the table, Daniel and Adam, could you guys maybe walk through or really just bottom line for us, maybe some of the, the bigger mistakes that people tend to make or, or mistakes that people should be avoiding when it goes through this, this prenup creation process? Um, so I think that it starts, the, the mistakes start at the beginning of the process. Um, if you don't have a full, honest and fair conversation with the person whom you're marrying, um, you will get into a situation where there's already a lack of trust and you guys haven't even started your married lives together, right? That's really the first, you know, something we've, you know, harped on since the beginning of this is, you know, don't make that mistake. Have the difficult conversation, get it over with. Maybe it's going to be a couple of difficult conversations, but um, if you are unable to have that conversation with somebody, or if the conversation doesn't go well and you're fighting all the time and so on and so forth, I mean, that might not be a person who you should marry and who you should want to spend the rest of your lives with. And I'm sure Daniel has this, had the situation and I've had the situation where People have the conversation and they call off the wedding um, because they are unable to continue the conversation. It's not something we hope for. It's not something we aspire to, but start having the conversations early and openly and honestly, because um, that is open and honest communication is key to a successful marriage and it's key to the successful negotiation of a contract. Um, you need to, you know, hire your lawyer early in the process. And a, a mistake people make is they call us up two weeks before and they say, yeah, I need a prenup. Um, and my answer to a lot of those people is, uh, sorry, I'm not the guy for you. I can't help you. Um, you're getting married in two weeks. I have a trial next week and we haven't even started. I don't know what you have. I don't know anything about your situation. Now, you probably can find a lawyer who would help. Somebody will help that person in their situation. But that's a disaster um, because mistakes happen when everyone's rushing and um, it can create, you know, bad feelings when you're supposed to be having good feelings and it can, you know, lead to potentially somebody saying, oh, maybe this agreement wasn't done on the up and up. It was, you know, jammed down somebody's throat two weeks before the wedding. So you want to avoid that situation too. Um, you want to work with an advisor. And again, this is something we've, we've, um, you know, harped on as well, somebody who knows what they're doing, who practices in this space, who is a matrimonial or family law practitioner, right? These agreements are, are going to be interpreted by a divorce judge if in the event of your divorce. You want somebody who knows what that divorce judge is going to say, who's, you know, what they're going to look at, what they're going to, um, you know, how they're going to apply the agreement to your situation, right? Having somebody who practices before those judges all the time is exactly what you want in somebody who's going to be advising you on a valid and enforceable agreement. Um, I mean, those are probably the three biggest mistakes that I see um, when you, you know, don't have open communication, when you're rushing to get things done, and when 
you know, you don't have maybe the, the most artfully worded agreement, that's when you're going to have the most problems, right? You're going to have a lack of trust. You're going to have something that maybe a judge doesn't know what it means, or, um, you know, you're going to develop really bad feelings with your spouse, um, you know, early on in your relationship, which might set the tone for everything and, and lead you down a path that you don't want to go on. Sure, sure. Well, uh, you know, I appreciate you kind of, you know, peeling back that curtain, showing us some of the mistakes that you guys see on a regular basis. And, and Hannes, I know that you probably from the wealth manager perspective, you've seen some of these unfortunate situations probably unfold as well. Uh, you know, do you, Hannes, do you have any final, maybe additional points on this topic when uh, that come to your mind and you think it's important for us to discuss before we close out the conversation today? Yeah. So yeah, as I explained earlier, many individuals enter into a prenup prior to marriage as a way to preserve their family's legacy and any generational wealth. And that naturally means that that one or both spouses, parents will insert themselves into the situation and broach the subject when their daughter or son initially had no thought of bringing it up at all. Right. Um, and there are two effective strategies that can be used to make the parent driven process more effective. The first one is that make sure parents discuss prenuptial agreements relatively early, just like you said, get annoyed early, you know, bring up the topic early on with your kids. It can make the child more familiar with the family's financial situation when appropriate and show that the prenup is not personal against one, you know, particular significant other, um, but it's really just for the benefit of the family. And then second, in cases where there is a family business or multi-generational multi wealth in play, it can be really useful to think about prenups through the perspective of family legacy, right? The issue then becomes more about stewardship than just ownership. And, um, and so, you know, I'm sure, Danny, you've seen some cases that um, kind of address that. And, you know, we always love examples and, uh, and especially, especially the fun ones, while they may not be fun to go through, but they're certainly interesting and entertaining to kind of um, learn from. Um, so, you know, I don't know if you have any, any, anything to add or any, any stories or examples that, that you want to throw in here. Uh, I mean, yeah, we've seen it all. We've seen it all. Um, and I think that, you know, that's why we, we always have so much fun together, Hans, when we sit down and, <laughs> and have drinks. And there's, there's you know, I, not, a week, not a week goes by that I don't hang up the phone uh, at least once during the week. And I think it, Adam probably has, has this happen where we're, we, we hang up and we, we were not expecting or had any idea the information we were we were about to read. Um, I, in terms of of specific stories, I think you know we, one one great one uh, was that I was involved in a matter where uh, somebody had a seventy five page prenup that was not drafted by matrimonial counsel and 74 and a half pages talked about how they were gonna treat the assets that they held separately um, as their separate property in any iteration. 
droning on for 74 pages. And then in the middle of one of the called 33rd page was a paragraph that said anything that's held in joint names on the date that a, a matrimonial action is commenced will be shared equally. And in this particular matter, the husband had placed uh, a, his wife on a joint bank account with roughly $15 million in it. Um, and he had completely forgotten about it. And he had did it uh, many, many years prior to the divorce action. And it was a very, very healthy prenuptial agreement. Uh, and the husband had just neglected to uh, move the money, which would have been within his right, or in fact that his wife had, was on the, uh, on the account. And uh, we found it and she got an, uh, an extra significant amount of money. I mean, that's just one sort of fun, anecdotal, straightforward one. There, there's all these complicated ones, but I mean, it goes right back to, and the reason that I thought it'd be a good example it goes back to in full circle, and I've mentioned it quite a bit during the call, and it's why uh, we work so closely with, with Hans and his team in a lot of our different matters. Uh, how you really have to make sure that it is uh, a team approach, it's collective, that the people that you're working with know about all the um, agreements that are in place, know about all the different um, you know, holdings that you have, your estate plan, so that something like this uh, doesn't happen. And um, it's really an outgrowth of this podcast because Hans and I, as you said, we were at our, our Basel and we were just talking about some of the interesting things that come up in our practice, especially now that people are becoming more educated and you know, work with Hans and know that you, know, you need to be forward thinking about this type of stuff because you don't wanna fall into the pitfalls that you either didn't do an agreement or you didn't do the agreement appropriately, or you didn't have somebody um, like Hans to advise you to uh, do, do an agreement, uh, abide by it, make decisions with respect to it. Um, and you just gotta be, you gotta be careful, but you know, there's ways to, ways to do this correctly. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's really, um, once, once you, I, I, Come full circle. I use this sort of GI Joe reference. Knowing is half the battle. That's why you know having these conversations is so important and helpful. That was a great example. I know you've given me some other ones that were you know that were equally as, as funny. Um, not that it's a fun topic, but um, <laughs> you know I um, just you know an unpleasant topic, but that really needs to be addressed because it can. Uh, prevent some even further unpleasant situations down down the road. Um, and so I was, you know, kind of, I don't know if you, if any of you remember the movie Intolerable Cruelty, I always think of, of uh, Daniel and Adam as the, the Miles Massey of, uh, you know, in, in real life though. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's so important to... There are some provisions that Adam and I have created that I don't know. We're not sure that, that they've ever seen the light of day thus far and, and they've been challenged, but we, uh, we have come up with some, some fun and interesting things that, uh, yeah, can include in these. Yeah. The Lipshots Turbowitz prenup, I like that. No, like the massive prenup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit stronger. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much, guys.
Yeah, absolutely. And, and guys, uh, just, you know, as one final thing, uh, you know, if anybody in our audience out there, you know, benefited from today's conversation, had any key takeaway, maybe they're approaching this circumstance themselves. Let's say they wanted to get on the horn and maybe reach out to you, Hannes, your team or, or Adam uh, and Daniel, your team. How would be the best way they should get in contact with somebody from your office to maybe get that ball rolling and start that conversation? Uh, so Daniel and I practice in New York and South Florida. You can find uh, both of us on our website, um, bsfllp.com. Uh, our emails are there. Our contact information is there. Email is probably the best way to reach us, but you can call either of our offices. They will find us and we will call you back. Um, easy enough. And equally for us, you know, when, when we go through tr stress tests and we realize that a client does need um, at least have a conversation about this topic, um, you know, reach out to us. We will connect you to to um, the experts, whether it's um, family lawyers or other matters. But um, certainly, you know, that's that's how we run our practice. Fantastic. Well, guys, uh, one final thank you to you all uh, for carving some time out of your busy days to be with us here on the show. Dive into this idea of prenups and you know divorce litigation, and uh, just appreciate you guys and your time. Thank you. Our pleasure thank you for having us. Thanks, guys. And look, and look, we want to take one final moment, as always. Thank you, all right, our audience, for jumping aboard with us on today's conversation. If you liked what you saw, you liked what you heard, do us a favor, comment on the show, subscribe to it on whichever platform you checked us out on, and then, of course, share this information with friends, family, business owners, anybody that you think would benefit from these types of conversations, because at the end of the day, it's conversations like these with Hannes and I that uh, are meant for you. We're taking a look through the wealth lens and trying to bring some great uh, topics and strategies right to your door. So, uh, you know, we've got some great conversations teed up on some future episodes that we would hate to have you miss out on. So for Hannes Grasher, as well as Daniel and Adam, I'm Ryan Ruff. We're going to go ahead and say so long. We appreciate you joining us on today's edition of Through the Wealth Lens. This communication is intended to be used for educational purposes only and does not constitute a solicitation to purchase any security, insurance, or advisory service. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. An investment in any security involves significant risks, and any investment may lose value. Refer to all risk disclosures related to each security product carefully before investing. This commentary is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be replied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be officially those of UBS Financial Services Incorporated and the firm does not verify nor guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services Incorporated offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC registered broker dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products and services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com slash relationship summary.